Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. We're going to actually work our way through all 28 verses, but in preparation, look with me at verse 9 and also verse 10, and look at what the Bible says there. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will be able to attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Charles Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. And you know, that is a good way of summarizing the description of Paul's missionary journeys, and in particular, his work at the city of Corinth. Paul is going to engage this particular city on his second missionary journey. In fact, it is the last major stop in this journey that began in chapter 15 and verse 36 and then concludes in chapter 18 and verse 22. He will stay here for 18 months. It will be his second longest uh, stint. He will only exceed it by the three years that he will later spend at Ephesus. Uh, he will become very much attached to this particular church. I am in agreement with those who believe he actually wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Two of them are, of course, preserved in our New Testament as First and Second Corinthians. Uh, he goes to a city that uh, needed the gospel. And he goes to a city that was very, very sinful in terms of its reputation and in terms of its activity. In fact, it would not be a stretch to say that Corinth was the sin city of the first century. And yet it was a city that was on God's radar screen, and it was a city that God led Paul to go and spend and invest 18 months of his life and thereby evangelizing that city and planning a church there, a vibrant church, yes, a troubled church, yes, but a church of the Lord Jesus Christ nonetheless. And as we walk through these verses in chapter 18, I think there are seven observations we can make in the context of church planting, uh, in the context of missionary expansion, in the context of how we can operate with a firm conviction that when we go under his direction and leadership, the gospel cannot be stopped. Most of what we're going to see in this chapter is very practical, and uh, it is not deeply theological. And yet at the same time, there are points of theology scattered throughout these eight, 28 verses that we certainly need to take note of. So we're going to move quickly. You listen in a hurry. Number one, when we are going to extend the gospel, we should, number one, look for people who will work with you in gospel ministry. You look for people who will work with you in gospel ministry. Look at what it says there in chapter 18 and verse 1. After this, after his ministry in Athens, where he had had some success, but not great success, as he'd engaged the philosophers there on Mars Hill. So after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. He found a Jew there named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And they were there because Claudius, the Roman emperor, had had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We, by the way, can pinpoint that precisely in A.D. 
49. And so they had left Rome, and he went to see them. In verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, what I just wanted to see here is that Paul immediately finds companions in the ministry, recognizing that there's never any place for a lone ranger in gospel ministry and certainly in church planning. In fact, we have come to realize over uh, the past several decades that when we send out a single church planter or even a couple as a church planter, the odds are somewhere around 70 to 80 percent that they will fail. But if we send them out in teams of 8, 10, 12, the odds are about 90% that they will succeed. Well, we should have seen this all along because this is what you find scattered throughout the book of Acts. Paul immediately locates Priscilla and Aquila, and they engage in, yes, bivocational ministry, which again is something I think that we have unfortunately neglected in much of our church planning fact of the matter is, sometimes financial demands require that we go bivocationally. But by the same token, what a great avenue to build relationships with regular, normal, lost people whom you hope to build relationships with and to evangelize. And so, Paul looks for people who will work with him in the gospel ministry, and he finds Priscilla and Aquila. But it doesn't stop there. If you look at verse 5, Silas and Timothy, whom he had left in Macedonia, arrived to be there with him. So now you've got Paul, you've got Priscilla, you've got Aquila, you have got Silas, and you've got Timothy all working together as a team in gospel ministry. We need to look for people who will work with us in this ministry. Number two, we keep on proclaiming the gospel until we find receptive hearts. We noticed in verse 4 the words reasoned and the word persuade. You now find added in verse 5 the word testifying. Later you will see in verse 11 the word teaching. And again in verse 13 the word persuading. So we see that Paul has a multifaceted approach to sharing the gospel with those that he is evangelizing. He reasons with some of them. The word means to discuss, to argue. It even has that connotation of debating. Uh, He is there persuading, urging them, coming up alongside of them and trying to guide them in the direction that they need to go. And of course, he is testifying. He is witnessing. The idea is he is solemnly and fervently sharing and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, as he should be testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed, number one, and reviled, mocked him, secondly, he first of all shook out his garment and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul uses a twofold imagery here. First of all, the shaking off of one's garment or the shaking of the dust off of one's feet that Jesus himself used in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 14. The shaking of one's garments you find in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 5 and verse 13. And the statement, your blood be on your heads, you also find in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1 through 7. In other words, without being unkind, 
mind here, he was not going to continue to cast his pearls before the swine. Those that he was seeking to evangelize in this context, it says that they both opposed him and they mocked him, they reviled him. And in essence, Paul comes to a point when he says, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. I'll be spitting in the wind to continue to engage you. I will be casting my pearls before swine if I continue to waste my time with you. And therefore, the Bible says he shook his garment. He said, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. I've shared the gospel. I have demonstrated from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ from now on. And it is a major turn in many ways in the book of Acts. Paul says, I will go to the Gentiles. And so verse 7, he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Uh, probably a God-fearer in this context. His house was next door to the synagogue and Crispus the ruler of the synagogue, believed. So did he cease witnessing to Jews? No, but he did begin to strategically move away from those that were scorning the message, mocking the message, rejecting the message, and he begins to look for receptive hearts and ears elsewhere. And in God's good providence, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. And note, he believed together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, both believed and they were baptized. By the way, let me just, by way of reminder, uh, keep before our mind's eye, there's no such thing in the Bible, no such thing in the New Testament as a believer who has not been baptized. If you were to bring Paul back today and have him stand before us and you were to point to someone and say, Paul, there is a believer in Jesus Christ, but they've never been baptized, Paul would say, that's nonsense. That's oxymoronic. There's no such thing in the Bible as a believer who does not identify himself by baptism with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the order, of course, is significant as well. You believe and then you are baptized. So we just keep on proclaiming the gospel until we find receptive hearts. Number three, we should believe the promise of God that he has many people he will save. We should believe the promise of God that he has many people that he will save. Back to the text I read earlier, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. First of all, I am with you. Secondly, no one will be able to attack you, to harm you. And number three, I have many in this city who are my people. While there's so much that we could find in these verses, let me hit the high points. First of all, I'm encouraged to know that even someone like Paul perhaps could have fear in his assignment. I don't want to read too much into the text, but I have a suspicion that Paul was not all that enthusiastic about going to Corinth. After all, it was sin city. Uh, after all, it was a city like Athens steeped in philosophy. Uh, he had been in Athens seeking to do the work of evangelism, and uh, he had had moderate success, but not great success. Now, some people, I think, wrongly say that Paul's approach in Athens was faulty, and that based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he changed his approach in Corinth and went back simply to preaching the gospel. I, I don't accept that at all. 
But I do agree that Paul comes to Corinth and he says, as he did write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. By the way, he didn't do that in uh, Acts chapter 17 in Athens. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and this is a wonderful commentary on the verses we just read in Acts, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul acknowledges in these verses that he goes there, or at least the text acknowledges that there were some hesitancies on his part, some fears. And so the Lord appears to him in a vision. He says to him the same thing, by the way. He said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 1, to Isaac in Genesis 26, 24, to Jacob in Genesis 46, verse 3, uh, to Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, and to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, and to Mary in Luke 1, and to Peter in Luke 5, do not be afraid. Stop fearing. Why should I stop fearing, Lord? Because, number one, I am with you. As we hear at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. He can claim that great commission promise that the Lord is with him. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I love the words of Lottie Moon who said that we are immortal on this earth until our work is done. And so until God is through with us, we are in essence immortal. We cannot be stopped. We cannot be shut down. No one will harm you for, and I love this statement, I have many in this city who are my people. Do you see the beautiful balance in that verse between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? In terms of divine sovereignty, God says to Paul, you just keep doing it. I've got many people that are mine. I've got many people that are going to believe. I've got many people that I have known from eternity past that they are mine, that they belong to me. I have predestined in eternity past that they are going to come to me. But yet, how do they come to him? By Paul speaking the word and not being silent. Again, don't you ever forget, I don't care where you are on this spectrum of election, predestination, Calvinism, Arminianism, whatever it is, no one gets saved who does not repent and believe the gospel. No one. And unless they hear the gospel, they cannot repent and they cannot believe. That is the God-ordained means whereby men and women and boys and girls are born into the kingdom of God. Paul certainly understood that. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. And Luke certainly understood it as well. Yes, I have many people in this city, so I am with you. You keep speaking, and don't you be silent. In verse 11, it says, he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We must believe the promise of God that he has many people he will save. Number four, we should trust God to work in ordinary ways to keep the work going. We should trust God to work in ordinary ways to keep the work going. One man well said, the devil never kicks a dead horse 
Uh, he kicks living horses. And of course, as the gospel is now spreading throughout Corinth, we can expect greater opposition. And that's exactly what you see in verses 12 through 17. I'll just note these very quickly. Now, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, we know the date is AD 51, uh, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, they had in view Jewish law, not uh, Roman law, as the text will make very clear. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he doesn't even get a chance to. For Gallio says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names and your own law, you see to it to yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. Now, you say, well, then nothing bad happened. No. Verse 17, they all see Sosthenes, who, by the way, there is a Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. I think it's highly likely that they are the same individual who is indeed a man that is beaten and a man who as a result of what he suffers comes to faith in Christ. So they see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. They beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio, he's not exactly an ethical man. He's not exactly a man of integrity. He paid no attention to any of this. He let them beat this man uh, without warrant. He allowed them to beat this man, really contrary to the law. But again, as we saw many times in uh, the land of Israel with men like Pilate and men like Herod, their ultimate goal was simply to maintain the peace. And if looking the other way while somebody was being beat was going to help maintain the peace, they had no problem with that. Yet what I want us to see is this, God worked through this event to bring Sosthenes to faith in Christ. And God worked through this particular ordinary situation to allow the gospel to continue to be proclaimed in the city of Corinth. Sometimes we just need to trust God in ordinary ways to keep his work going. Number five, we should be obedient to the will of God and just keep on making disciples. Look at verse 18. After this, that is after his uh, 18 months in Corinth uh, and after the beating of Sosthenes, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. And so it probably includes the 18 months, though some actually think it's added to it. Uh, regardless, he stayed many days longer. And then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, he takes Priscilla and Aquila. And at Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Quick footnote, a vow of devotion, not a vow of salvation. Most likely, he is picking up on the tradition that you find of the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And so, it's not anything other than an act of devotion. Remember, he's still working among Jewish persons. He's still trying to evangelize Hebrews. He perhaps, in fact, I'm almost certain saw this as an avenue to keep that door open. So, he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. And then they came to Ephesus where he will spend in his third missionary journey three whole years because it was such a strategically located city city. But he left them there. He left too. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself went to the synagogue, and as he always did, he reasoned first with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. 
But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. You look ahead to chapter 19 and verse 10, and you will see that it was indeed God's will that he would return to Ephesus. Well, while he is continuing on, what does he do? Verse 22 and 23. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, the church at Caesarea, uh, excuse me, the church at uh, Jerusalem. And then he went back down to the other main uh, missionary center at this time, the church at Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, doing what? Strengthening all the disciples. In other words, Paul didn't come up with some new program. Paul didn't come up with some new idea. Paul simply kept doing what he had been doing faithfully day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. You know, our culture suffers badly from a desire and a malady that thinks that new is always better and that we always need to be coming up with some new idea, some new program. I watch so many of the churches in our convention that are always chasing their tail by trying to come up with something new, creative, dynamic, that is going to attract more people when what they simply need to do is keep preaching the gospel and making disciples. Preaching the gospel and making disciples. Let me tell you something. We can't compete with the world. The world will always, if I might say it this way, kick our tails when it comes to entertainment, and when it comes to programming, we cannot compete with them. Why do we even try? You see, that's one of the great blessings of leaving the comforts of North America and going to the mission field and meeting with brothers and sisters who meet under mango trees or who meet out in a field or who gather in a home. Because let me tell you something. Everything that is necessary to be an authentic New Testament church can take place right there. And anything in addition to that, including beautiful buildings and comfortable pews and microphones, and I'm not against those things, but they're extraneous. They are not necessary to us being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul just kept doing what he had been doing from the beginning, preaching the Word and making disciples, preaching the Word and making disciples, preaching the gospel and making disciples. Number six, very important. Recognize gifted servants of Christ that you instruct and then you turn them loose. Recognize gifted servants of Christ that you instruct and then you turn them loose. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. I mean, he could preach the stars down, competent in the Scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though, now here's an important footnote, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, let me just make a quick, simple statement. Apollos' message was not inaccurate, and his message was not insincere. It was just incomplete. His message was not inaccurate. It was not insincere. It was just incomplete. And so he was preaching, but he only knew to this point the baptism of John and Jesus' ministry related to the baptism of John. Well, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but 
When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him, and the implication is they took him aside. They didn't do it publicly. They didn't try to embarrass him. After all, they could read the intent of his heart by what he was doing. They could read the intent of his heart by what he was saying. And so they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They gave him the totality of the message concerning the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They basically completed the gospel for him. They're in a transitional period, so keep that in mind. Verse 27, and when he wished to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. My point is simply this. We have to be willing to release our grasp on people that God gifts and turn them loose to go to other places to expand the ministry of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Many times churches, I watch them. Somebody God raises up in terms of giftedness, in terms of ministry, or this is just for free. God brings to their church someone that's got bank. They've got money. And yet God gets a hold of the heart of that person who has money. And now they decide, you know what? I'm willing to uproot my family and go to San Diego, to go to Washington, to go to Boston, to go to Portland, to go to Chicago, to go to these places where the gospel witness is so desperately needed and pastors nearly have a stroke. If you leave, I will lose your money. And I've heard that more than a few times. And for any pastor that thinks in those kind of categories, shame on him. First of all, do you not believe that God can bring to you other people that can replace that money that you're almost idolizing? Aren't you grateful that God gets a hold of a heart of a man that is well equipped to make money, to go to places where they actually need money? What a novel idea that we would be willing to release our grip on those that God gifts in terms of ministry, that God gifts in terms of ability to make money, and we say, let them go, and we send them out for the greater glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. You need to recognize those gifted servants of Christ that you instruct, and then you turn them loose. And then number seven, never forget the scriptures show that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 28, what does it say of Apollos? He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, remember, the only Scriptures that Apollos had at this particular time was what we call our Old Testament. And yet, from the Old Testament, perhaps Genesis chapter 3, the Proto-Evangelium, or Genesis 12, the Messiah is coming from Abraham. Or Genesis 49, the Messiah is coming from Judah. Or Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Messiah is going to be a prophet greater than Moses. Or 2 Samuel 7, the, the, the Messiah is going to be a son of David. Oh my goodness. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, 23, 24, 45, 89, 110, and a plethora of others all are pointing to Jesus. And then you go to Isaiah and his four servant songs reaching a pinnacle in Isaiah chapter 53. And from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the end of the old covenant in Malachi, they could demonstrate and show that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. And I would just say to all of us as I close, do we know our Old Testament that well? If you were restricted to only having those first 39 books of the Bible, could you clearly and uh, uh, compellingly share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? 
These are seven principles that I think guide us as we seek to extend the gospel. I think they are foundational in how we do church planning, and this much I do know. God certainly blessed the ministry of the Apostle Paul in his faithfulness, and he blessed the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila in their faithfulness, and he blessed the ministry of Apollos in his faithfulness. Why would I doubt that he would also bless our faithfulness as well? Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? I thank you for this chapter that is a long narrative that indeed uh, contains some marvelous principles of encouragement, some marvelous uh, insights in terms of strategy, and Lord, ultimately, a wonderful promise that you are with us as we go out sharing the gospel. And until you are finished with us, we are immortal. No one can take us out. And Lord, as we are faithful to preach, we will discover that you have many, many, many people in those places that were simply waiting for our arrival, and they were waiting for us to bring the life-changing gospel. Lord, we learn from the book of Acts, and in particular, Acts 18, that the gospel cannot be stopped. So, Lord, like Paul, remove our fears, give us courage, do not allow us to be silent, but may we keep on speaking the word, knowing that your word will not return void. How we thank you for that promise, and we claim it for ourselves this day, praying this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.